The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Amen, church. Just got to sing the gospel to each other, didn't we? Uh, it's such an honor. I um, want to wish you Happy New Year's um, as well, and um, I'm glad 2021 is here. I'm glad you're here as well. Um, and uh, listen, I feel a little bit like I'm at the starting line of, uh, and I'm like raring to go because I'm ready to be back into Romans. We spent the, the bulk of last year in Romans, which is this giant of a book. Um, just this incredible book, and it was picking up a crazy amount of steam before we got to our, our season in Advent. We, we uh, spent our, those weeks in Advent together, and now we're going to do our best to pick up right where we left off, and I'm excited to get back in to this. Um, listen, a few things to kind of get us back into the Romans mindset, if you, if you will, as we get back into this. Um, the first one is this. Romans is a continual argument. It's one letter. It's one long letter that builds on itself and grows and twists and turns and rises and falls. And, and, and I say this because this happens to be one of the most challenging things about Romans, and especially about preaching Romans the way we do here. So here at, at Stone Oak Bible, we, we preach through books of the Bible verse by verse, and we take them little by little, and, and uh, we have this, um, I'm going to call it the zoomed-in approach, so the way we deal with Scripture, and I love this, and, and I, love, I love that we zoom in, but you know what's going to be really important is for us to have the ability together, as we zoom in, to understand where the things all fit together. So to be able to understand how things fit into the bigger, the bigger letter, um, how things come together. And so because of this, I want to uh, put a challenge in front of you again if you've not done it. Um, I don't have a clever title. I'm going to call it the Reading Romans Challenge, all right? How's that for simplicity? Um, if you are an average reader, not fast, not super slow, just kind of somewhere in the middle, it's going to take you about an hour to do this. So that if you think about it, that's, that's way less than a movie. You know, it's maybe two of episodes from your favorite show. That's it. That's it. That's how long it's going to take um, to get through the entire letter. Now, the reason I put this challenge before you is because it's going to help us. As we walk through the trees, it's going to help us to all be able to see the forest. And it's really important when we get to Romans. So if you haven't done it, if you haven't read through Romans in one sitting, I want to invite you to, to, to do it, to do it with me. And uh, so all you got to do, there's no like special thing here. It's just, you know, take an hour, grab your Bible, find a really good chair with some good lighting and a good cup of coffee and go for it. If you don't drink coffee, I forgive you, but it works better with coffee. Um, and I've said this before, but one of the things I love about this challenge is I guarantee, I guarantee that after you have done it, you will not sit back and go, man, I regret doing that. I guarantee it. I guarantee you will not regret having done this as we look at it all zoomed in 
uh, together each weekend. Now, um, one more thing, second thing here that I'd like to talk about just to, as we get started before I read our text uh, this morning is that because this is a continual letter, um, Paul has one point that he's giving us. Uh, I, uh, I had the privilege of teaching theology for a couple of years, and uh, I loved assigning position papers for the students, and I would, I would always tell them, hey, when you're giving me a paper, I need you to give me your thesis clearly, and I want you to put it right at the beginning, right? And then you can build on it and defend it and talk about it, but don't forget to give me your thesis, right? I would always say this to my, to my, my students, and um, they would listen most of the time. They really would. But um, in some ways, that's exactly what Paul does in his letter, and so if you think about Romans, if you looked at the, the, the very beginning of Romans, in, in Romans 1, he, he starts by saying, hi, I'm Paul, you're the church in Romans, here's why I'm writing to you, and then his thesis. Like right from the beginning, he gives it, he, he would do great in my class. Um, but in Romans 1, 16, it's right at the beginning, and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God to, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And then in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There it is. The righteous shall live by faith. Justification is by faith alone, through Christ alone, Paul's thesis, right at the beginning. And now from there, hey, it's been a while since we've been in Romans, so you're going to have to forgive me here. I'm going to take this really quick flyby to get us to chapter 7, which we're going to be this morning. Um, So forgive me if I'm quick, but I'm going to do my best here. So after Paul gives us his thesis... He starts off by saying, hey, God is holy and just, and you are not. You're a sinner. So God is holy, you are a sinner, and, and God's right, righteous, and only response, because these things are true, is wrath. Paul starts this right here, and he says, the, God's response to evil and to sin is wrath, and there is no excuse from it. So no one can stand before the Lord and say, no, I was good. I was pretty good. I was better than that guy. Or, or, you know, I didn't know. No, Paul says, no excuse. This is the reality. We all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And the consequences of that, because that's true, it's wrath. No excuse will be valid. Whether you're Gentile, not under the law, or Jewish, under the law, does not matter. And so what we talked about is Paul continually brings us back to the question. The question is not whether or not we will experience the, or whether or not God will pour out his wrath for our sin. That's not the question. The question, as Paul drives us back to, is this. Who is going to bear the wrath of God for your sin? Will it be you or will it be Jesus through faith and faith alone? That's the question. And so Paul beautifully shows us that salvation, justification is by 
grace through faith, and that has always been the plan. It is plan A. It, with Abraham, salvation is by faith. By faith, we are made righteous. By faith, we receive the promises of God. By faith, we, are in, we have peace with our God. By faith. And, and so, from here, Paul then begins to build. And the last thing before we get to chapter 7, because that's true, Paul then asks the question, well, why does it matter how we live? If you remember that in, in the, the early chapters of Romans. Why does it matter then why we live? If we're justified by faith and made righteous by faith, why does it matter then what we do? Why does it matter? And so Paul reminds us that the Christian life, the life in Christ, is not about some religious obligation, going through religious motions. It's not about religious morality modification. No, Paul reminds us that life in Christ is about a new identity in Christ. And, and he, he reminds us that we are not Christ-like in order to earn God's affection, but that we are loved by God, made righteous by faith in God, and now we're being conformed to the image of Christ through faith from the inside out. I could say more. I promised I was going to be brief, though, because that's just our, our way of getting all on the same playing field, because this brings us in to chapter 7. And um, by the way, church, Paul is going to offer us a really unique example in our text. I, I have read through Romans several times. I've gotten the privilege to teach through Romans. And I, confession here, I don't think I have ever sat with this text. I don't think I've ever really sat with this example Paul gives us. It, it really challenged me. And I can't wait. I, can, I, can, I love that this is the first one back. Um, this, is, this is incredible. Um, and so what I'd like to do, I'd like for us to just kind of take this all in together. I'm going to read it. We're only going to deal with six verses. And then I'll pray for us and we'll get to work. So let me read this. This is Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who, who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers... You have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. God, would you help us to see it, to understand it, so that we can grow in our knowledge and love for you, 
And so that we can better understand ourselves in light of your word, that we can be changed and challenged by your Holy Spirit. God, thank you for your word. Would you use this time for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. We have a a weird example in our text. Um, It's this analogy of marriage that Paul uses here. Here's the big idea. Paul says, brother, um, specifically Jewish brothers and sisters, I'll get to that here in a bit, Um, but those who are living under the law, who had the law, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, brothers, he says, the law is a bit like marriage. And what does he say? He says, marriage is binding as long as the two people are alive. Right? That's the simple, that's the simple form of his, his argument here. A marriage is valid when the two people are alive. A woman, is the example he gives, is only married to her husband while her husband is alive. But after the husband dies, the woman is no longer married to the the, the wife, the woman is no longer bound in marriage. And at that point, if she would like, Paul says, she could get married to another. It's pretty simple. Um, but Paul goes on to point out to us, she could not get married to another while her husband lives. That is unfaithfulness. That is adultery. It's the example he gives. So big point here, while the husband lives, she's bound only to him. All kinds of thoughts flood my mind at this point. All kinds. As I considered this example, this has been incredible for me This going through this. So in the covenant of marriage, while the partners live, they are bound to each other. In church, this has profound implications. Here is what just blew my mind. Um, Paul, in this one example, takes legalism and blows it up, just destroys it. Uh, here's what I mean. Legalism is this idea that we can earn grace, that we can do enough to earn God's love, that we can do our, enough to kind of set ourselves up above the boneheads around us. It's legalism. And in this text, this example destroys that idea that we can make peace with our God through the law. It destroys any idea that we can try to take the law, moralism, doing good things, not doing bad things, that we can take that, staple some Jesus to it, and call it Christian. This example blows it up. Because here's the big point. Big point of the morning. Justification, salvation, requires death and resurrection. Justification, salvation, requires death and resurrection. Not just good behaviors, not just well-behaved heathens, but justification requires death. We're going to unpack this. Um, our being saved requires death and resurrection. So let me unpack this because here's the obvious question that comes to my mind, all of our minds. Whose death are you talking about here, Pastor? Whose death? You say it requires death. Whose death? Whose resurrection? You're talking about Jesus, right? 
You're talking about Jesus. You're talking about his death. You're talking about his resurrection, right? Yes and no. Yes and, and no. Let me talk about the yes part, okay? Yes, 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 yes. It's all about Jesus' work, his life, his death, his resurrection. In fact, if you look at our text, if you look at the text today, um, it, it, it talks all about this. Paul says specifically that you belong to another, to him who has, who has died, been raised from the dead. That's Jesus, right? So if Christ had not given his life, if Christ had not been risen from the dead, we would have no hope. This whole thing, all of this, all of it, this whole conversation would be done. If Christ hasn't been raised, if there was no resurrection, if he had not died, we should go home. We should not do this anymore. The hope, the peace, the joy, the love that we've talked about all through Advent, all of that would be, find us somewhere else. It's not here if Christ had not died and resurrected. So ultimately, yes, it hinges on the death and resurrection of Jesus. But that church is not the only death and the only resurrection that our text talks about. If you look again, verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law. What does he say? Verse 6, having died to that which held us captive. Um, do you hear it? Here's the, here's the reality. It's not just about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul is very clear that it's about our death and resurrection in Jesus. Follow me back here. Let's go back to Paul's analogy, the marriage analogy. We have two people. We have two people who are bound until death do we part. If we aren't careful, careful here, we can make one of two mistakes as we think about our relationship with Jesus. We can make one of two mistakes, and both are detrimental, absolutely detrimental to our life in Christ. Let's talk about them. Mistake number one. We can believe that the Christian life, that justification, that salvation does not require death or resurrection. That we can simply choose to follow Jesus a little bit here, a little bit there, um, take a little Jesus and staple him on to the rest of our life, and that Jesus can be this, 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 this sweet add-on to our life. We can believe the lie that no death is required. We can live our lives the way we want to live, the way the world lives, and we can just pour a little Jesus juice into that mix and call it Christian. Our text says no. You know what our text calls you if you do that? An adulterer. An adulterer. If you haven't died, you're still married. And for you to find Jesus... 
you're cheating. You see Paul's language here? I've never said with this before. It blew my mind. Paul calls me, calls us who believe this mistake, adulterers. Because without death, without resurrection, you are still happily married. You are still happily married to this world. All of its ways to the flesh, to the sin, to the old self, you're still happily married. And you can't simply staple Jesus onto your marriage. Jesus does not want to share your, affection, your, your divided affections. So mistake number one is to fail to realize that you were married and to fail to realize that it is until death do you part and to fail to realize that the Christian faith is a call to die. And a resurrection is required to live in Christ. Mistake number one. But hear me, that's not even the main mistake that our text deals with this morning. It's one of them. It's not the main one. The main one that we see here is equally destructive. Mistake number one is to believe that the Christian life justification does not require death or resurrection. Mistake number two is to fail to understand the who, whose death and resurrection is required. In our text, I want you to see this. It's not their death. It's not like we're waiting on, this is Paul's analogy. This sounds terrible, so follow with me here. We're not waiting for our spouse to die, Paul says. My words, his analogy. We're not waiting on them to go. It's a call for us to go. This is important language. This is important language. This is, this is not a call to wait for them to go. It's, it's not their death, church. It is ours. It's ours. It's our death. My death. Your death. Our death. The Christian life requires death and resurrection. Not only the death and resurrection of our Savior Jesus, but now because of Jesus, the Christian life requires our own death and our own resurrection. And without our death, we are still bound to another. The message of the cross, hear me church, is, a, is the message, the, go, the gospel message is, a mess, is the message of the cross. Does that make sense? Um, it is a call to come to take up your cross. It's a call to come and die so that you might live. So mistake number one is to think that the Christian life doesn't involve death or resurrection at all. Mistake number two is to think that the Christian life doesn't call for you to die. That you may truly live. Listen to Paul's words again. Likewise, my brothers, this is verse four. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Praise God, church, that we belong to another. We claim another and another claims us. Paul continues... That you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Listen, brothers and sisters, the, the pathway to life is through death. Jesus demonstrated this in his own life and death, his resurrection from death to life. The pathway to life is through death. And I want to be very clear about what I mean when I say this, because this is another one of those already but not yet things. 
On the one hand, let me get to the not yet part, and we'll get to the already part here in a bit. But on the one hand, we have the not yet part, and that is that our eternal, our eternal life, abundant life, is through death, meaning that when you breathe your last, when you breathe your last, that you and I, we will be with Jesus, alive with Jesus, alive in Jesus. We believe this. And that day, we believe that there is a day coming when the dead in Christ will rise. We're not just talking here about, about um, this vague kind of spiritualism that we're all going to be kind of floating, uh, spirit children. No, the Bible talks about a literal, physical resurrection, just like Jesus' resurrection was literal and physical. So on the one hand, we believe that our bodies, our physical bodies, our fallen bodies will experience death. And praise God, we believe and we hold to the hope that they will also experience resurrection. This is the, the, the not yet part. If you're here in this room, if you're watching us online, this is the part that we hold on to the hope that this is going to be our future in Jesus But there's also an already part to this as well. Um, often when we preach the gospel, we talk about the not yet part a lot. We do. We talk about how there's life, that death is not the end, death is not our end, our eternity is in Jesus, in and through Jesus, physical death marks the beginning of new life, and we should preach this. It should be a a keystone part of our gospel message that we share to others. Um, this is the part that, that of, of what the gospel of Jesus offers to us, and we cling, we cling to that, but there's also another hand to this offer. Because the gospel is also an already, an already offer as well. And what I mean by this is, on the one hand, the pathway to life is through death, our physical death later. And on the other hand, the pathway to life is through death. Our death, not only the physical death whenever that day comes, but church, the spiritual death, the death that we die to the flesh today. The pathway to life today is through death. And that is why the call of the gospel is to come and to die that you might live. That's why the call of the gospel is to come and take up your cross because life is found through death. We must die to our flesh or as Paul reminds us, we're still bound to it. We must die or you're still happily married. So listen to Paul's words again while we're living in the flesh, meaning before our death, not just our physical death, but before our, our death in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in the members to bear fruit for death, meaning that before we died to our flesh, we were living our lives bearing fruit for death. Verse six says, but now you've been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we We serve in a new way of the spirit, not not in the old way of the written code. So if you see what Paul just did there, he just turns it all upside down. He says, living your life in the flesh will bear fruit of death. And then he flips it and he says, 
But dying to your flesh will lead you to life. Life eternally and life abundantly. The pathway to life is through death. Death and resurrection are fundamental, foundational to the message of the gospel. Because the message of the gospel involves a cross and it calls us to die so that we can be free and that we can live. This is exactly, let me just read Jesus' words. Uh, Matthew 16, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What is Paul saying? What is Jesus saying in this text? The pathway to life is through death. And the flip side, the pathway to death is a refusal to lose our lives. I want to have an honest pastor moment here uh, just for a bit. Um, One of my greatest fears for the modern American church is actually this, that we have preached and believed a gospel without the cross. We have preached that we have believed a gospel that does not include or require death. And therefore does not really need resurrection. We've preached this this gospel without a cross. We've sought, this is painful to even say. I'm just going to say it, okay? I said honest, vulnerable pastor moment here. We have sought to tell people what they want to hear so that we can grow, we can build churches, we can build movements and take the city, right? And in some sense, church, it has worked. We have told people about the love of God. We've given them great great life principles that their life will be better if they do one, two, and three And uh, that they can just add these life principles to their lives and have it all. And we've grown our churches, we've grown our movement with a crossless gospel. And if I could just come back to Paul's analogy, here's my fear. that, That we have filled churches with adulterers. We've filled churches with people who are still happily married. And we're calling them to to cheat with a little Jesus. Seeking life without death. And because of that, still bound to the flesh. My uh, greatest fears for the modern American church is we have become so consumeristic. And our top concern is growth. We grow by getting people and we get people by telling them what they want to hear. And this is not just a blanket rebuke out there. This is a rebuke for me. This is a rebuke for all of us. Death does not sell. Um, People by and large don't want to come to this place and I tell them, let's get ready to die. We're going to die every day. I, that doesn't really, 
churches don't explode when pastors do that. Um, and what we want to do is we want as many people to hear the gospel as possible. And so, so, so we cut back a little bit and we kind of remove the cross and that whole death thing and resurrection thing until maybe later. Let's wait till year two of them being at our church before we drop that, that on them. And, and church, I believe with all my heart that this is detrimental to the church. It's a call to, to recognize that the gospel comes with a cross. It's a call to look to Jesus who gave his life, who died, and who resurrected. And it's a call to follow Jesus, <laughs> to take up our cross, to die daily, to crucify the flesh so that we may walk in newness of life today and that we may walk with Jesus forever in eternity after we breathe our last here. I've said this before, but I, I truly believe that we, right now, January 3rd, forgot what day it was, January 3rd, 2021, we are standing at an incredibly wonderful opportunity because I believe that the pandemic of 2020 and the one we're currently navigating right now has stripped away so much. And my prayer is that it will purify and refine. Purify and refine the modern American church. Where our primary concern is no longer about explosive numeric growth, bigger is better, bring them in, get them in, get them in, and how can we appeal to the masses that we we put that down. And that our primary concern is spiritual growth, proclaiming the gospel to each other, sending us out together to proclaim the gospel to our community and not removing the cross from the gospel. Understanding, by the way, I, this isn't going to be easy. Um, the, the scripture tells us that, guess what, that cross that we preach is foolishness. The Bible's very clear about this. The gospel we preach that involves a cross is foolishness and folly and craziness to a perishing world. So what that tells me, brothers and sisters, you're crazy to the world. You're crazy. You're insane to talk about dying. You're insane. We as a church are insane, are crazy for talking about death in a fallen world, the cross in a fallen world. And so we proclaim the full gospel all the more. If you remember Paul's thesis, I'm not ashamed of it. <laughs> it's the power of life. This is our call. So, so we encourage each other all the more in the gospel. We love each other all the more. We point people to the gospel all the more, to Jesus all the more. And guess what? We plant churches all the more who do the same. This is our call. And if we are pruned and refined as the American church, I, 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 I trust that God is at work and that this will be for his glory and ultimately for our good. Salvation requires death and resurrection. The death and resurrection of Jesus 
that and the death of our own flesh that we may be raised to walk in newness of life. I think this is a good time, by the way, to bring it back now to the context of, of Romans 7. Um, if you remember what Paul is specifically addressing, he's addressing the Jewish people and the people who, addressing specifically the law. And uh, hear me, the law was a good thing. It was a good thing. It was, it was actually given to them by God. So he's addressing the law. Not just the sinful, ugly things, uh, the sinful acts and the evil things that we do, but Paul here is talking about the good things, the law. And so, so I don't want us to miss this. When God calls you to die to yourself, to die to your flesh, to die to the old self, hear me here. God is, is not only calling you to die to all the sinful acts, to die to, you know, breaking the commandments and the evil things that you do. He's also calling you to die to all the good things that you try to do. To the keeping of the commandments. Die to that too. Die to everything that's in your power. Die to that. The gospel calls us to die to ourselves, our flesh, the evil and the the good that we try to do in our flesh. To take it all and to understand it does not save me. None of it can save me. This is what trust in Christ alone for our salvation means. So as we, I don't want to stop because Romans is so good. But um, as we stop for now, I want to give us just two kind of actions for us as we, as we get through this. And the, what does this mean for us, in other words? The first is this. I, I believe that this is a call for you to examine yourself. Better stated, I believe that this is a call to listen to the Holy Spirit as he examines you. Who or what have you placed your trust in? You are called to place your trust in Christ alone, not in yourself, not in your goodness, not in your keeping the law, not in anything that you do, your money, your abilities, whatever, but in Christ, in Christ alone. And so the question is, do you trust him? Have you placed your trust in him? Have you died to the flesh today? I don't, uh, I heard this said in Romans 12, it says that it, it gives us this uh, imagery that we, we um, present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And I heard this said once, and I think it's so true. You know what the problem is about living sacrifices? They continually want to crawl off the altar. And this is this call to continually put ourselves to death daily. That's the first thing. Second thing is, that's the personal side of this. I want to zoom out, though, because there is a collective side to this. Um, this is a call to not only examine ourselves or to allow the Holy Spirit to examine ourselves, but to allow the Holy Spirit to examine us collectively as a church. As a church, where do we place our trust? Do we rely on you know, catchy, poppy, moral messages instead of the full gospel uh, that includes the cross and, and painful calls? Do we spur each other on in the gospel or do we spur each other on in worldliness with Jesus stapled onto it? Do we desire to grow a church by fitting into our culture? 
Or do we desire to be faithful to Jesus and count the cost? Do, do we desire to preach the gospel of the cross and call people to look to Jesus? Have we collectively died to our flesh today? And this morning, let us examine ourselves both personally and collectively. This morning, let's listen to the Holy Spirit as he examines us. Justification, salvation, sanctification, the Christian life requires a cross, death and resurrection. Because the pathway to life is through death. Would you pray with me? God, I, I honestly don't want don't to stop this morning. Um, and so I pray that you continue to work. I pray that you apply. And I pray that you, you break down. Break us down. I pray for, for my brothers and my sisters as we've wrestled through your, your word and we start with just an acknowledgement that you are so good to us, that your love for us is beyond our comprehension, that you demonstrated that love through Jesus and his work through his death, his resurrection. And Lord, I also just pray, just collectively, just we repent for thinking that we can take life principles and call them Christianity and that, that we repent when we have, when we have sought to to follow Jesus and said no to dying to ourselves. We know that, that we do not die to ourselves in order to be saved, but we know that because we are saved that we now are a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away and we put it to death every day for your glory. So Lord, I am um, I pray for us collectively in this moment that you would, as we look ahead to 2021 and beyond, that you would cause Stone Oak Bible Church, our, our church family, to be faithful, to be bold, to trust in you more than we trust in our own strategies and ideas, but that we would trust in the simple proclamation of the gospel in all that we do and that people would be drawn not to, not to build our kingdom but to be drawn to you and to build the kingdom we give you glory for that and we um, as we close we just desire to sing about your love just one more time before we go home so Lord we respond in gratitude in Jesus name